0: Well, please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 13, verses one through nine. Luke chapter 13, verses one through nine. As you recall in this section of of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been teaching. He's been teaching uh, this crowd that is before him as well as his disciples. So Luke chapter 13, verses one through nine. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered answered them, And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, He answered him, Sir, Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Uh, May he write this word upon our hearts uh, this evening. As I mentioned, this extended section of, of Luke's gospel Jesus has been going back and forth between addressing the massive crowd that is around him, as well as his disciples who are before him. And here in this passage, Jesus addresses an issue that is presented to him by certain members of this crowd. Now, some members of this crowd are speaking to an event that had happened at some point in the past where Pilate had given the okay to the slaughtering of a number of Galileans as they were seeking to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. Now Jesus, in his response, seems to be putting words to what they were thinking. Were these Galileans, in some sense, worse sinners than the other Jews who made it out alive that day? Why? Why did these Galileans perish while... Many other Jews didn't. Why would God permit this to happen? Pilate to persecute the chosen people of God. The question is about God's ways in this world. This issue is an issue that I'd like to call the, the why predicament. When we question God's ways in this world we question God's acts of providence and we've all been there haven't we where we question the ways the way things turn out in our own life in the lives of, of our loved ones or friends in one sense we can think on a societal level we question why has the last two years transpired we think of COVID and the division and everything that's ensued in churches and families and communities, we ask why. On a more personal level, we can we can question why has God allowed a loved one to get sick or even die tragically? Why has God allowed maybe yourself to, to sh- struggle with physical ailments of either the mind or the body? You may question for those who desire a family of their own. Why can't I find a spouse? Why can't I have children of my own? It might be related to one's employment. Why am I facing insecure, uh, in, uh, insecurity with my job? Why can't I just find a job and find work? We might just be questioning our, our, the way our life has turned out. Why is my life the way it is? Why? We ask this question a lot. Why? And this is the issue that Jesus is addressing, the why predicament. As we seek to understand and unpack how Jesus addresses this issue, I'd like us to focus our hearts and minds on on three things. First, we'll consider the principle that Jesus is working with. So in one sense, this is the pretext to our passage. So the principle And then we'll consider how Jesus applies this principle to these members of the crowd. And lastly, we'll we'll consider how this principle applies to us today. Well, as I mentioned, there are those in this crowd who are questioning, why did these Galileans perish? What was God up to in this event? It doesn't make sense. We can't figure it out. Did they do something to deserve it? Were these Galileans in some sense worse sinners than the other Jews who made it out alive that day? Do they merit God's punishment and displeasure? Now, these members of the crowd aren't coming out of left field by thinking that these Galileans might be worse sinners. If you read the Old Testament, there are many, many occasions where the people of God, the nation of Israel, receive harsh judgment because of their sin. And these punishments, these judgments, oftentimes are very earthy, very temporal, very physical. And furthermore, on a broader level, the Bible says that God's law has been written upon the hearts of every single human being. But Paul says in Romans 2, is what is oftentimes referred to as natural law. Even the Gentiles have the law of God inscribed upon their hearts. And this law, it has a certain reap what you sow character to it. For instance, if someone is hardworking, virtuous, honest, you can generally expect that they'll enjoy some level of prosperity. But on the flip side, if someone is lazy, full of vice, dishonest, you can generally expect that life may be a bit more difficult for them. For instance, if someone comes up to you and, and uh, they're lazy, they can't hold down a job, they're a drunk, they have multiple kids with uh, multiple different partners, they're promiscuous, and they come to you and they're asking, why is my life so hard? You wouldn't be scratching your head as to why life is so hard. Our our actions, our decisions have consequences. We reap what we sow. However, we know that we live post-Genesis 3. We live in a post-fall world. As Reformed Christians, we oftentimes speak about the effects of that fall upon our personhood, our hearts. But we don't always uh, talk about the effects of the fall upon creation. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that creation itself has been subjected to futility. And creation itself is groaning with the pains of childbirth until that glorious day of redemption. Thus, one of the consequences of creation being subjected to futility is this reap what you sow character. This retribution principle, as it were, it doesn't always play out the way we expect. What happens now is oftentimes it's the wicked who prosper and the righteous ones, the virtuous individuals, who get the short end of the stick. This is what Psalm 73 is all about. Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, is languishing. To use uh, the term... That uh, one would use today. He's on the, on the point of deconstructing his faith because he looks out and he sees the wicked are fat and prosperous while the righteous ones are languishing. How can this be? This is what the book of Job is about. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. The vanity of vanities. That vanity is why do things go the way that they go? It doesn't make sense. We often question God's ways in the world. Why do things turn out the way that they do? And so this precipitates the, the why predicament. Well, as I mentioned, the principle that Jesus is using here comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The book of Deuteronomy is about God giving the law through Moses. God gives a law to the people of Israel. He doesn't just give the law, but he also gives the blessings and the curses that they should expect due to their obedience or disobedience to that law. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, so this is at the end of the giving the law, Moses says this. He says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Moses is telling the people that You have the revealed will of God. And when you go on and you enjoy some measure of blessing, that should not be unexpected. God told you. He revealed that to you. And when you suffer God's judgment and curse and punishment, that also shouldn't be a surprise to you. That's been revealed to you. But beyond that, you are not to pry into the secret will of God. It's secret for a secret. Boys and girls, a secret is something that your ears are not to hear. That's what secret means. God says he has a secret will that that we will not know in this age and in part even in the age to come. In fact, in Psalm 73, if you've not read that psalm, I encourage you to read that. Uh, The author Asaph, he's, again, he's uh, becoming disillusioned as he's questioning God's ways in the world and the change in that psalm is not that God comes to him and reveals the secret will, his secret will. Rather, he steps into the sanctuary. He smells the, the smell of charred animal flesh. He re- remembers the revealed will of God. And his heart finds solace in that. He still doesn't know the secret will of God. He still doesn't know why these things are taking place, why the wicked are prospering and he's languishing. But he's at a place to go with his guilt. He's a place to go to find the forgiveness of sins. And so we are not to exegete providence. We are to exegete the word of God. For us as New Covenant Christians, we are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, which means God's law is not enjoined with physical blessings and curses. Which means that if we enjoy physical temporal blessing in this life, we shouldn't automatically think that that is some meritorious reward for our righteousness. On the flip side, trials and tribulations our hardships are not signs of God's punishment. The revealed will of God tells us that. But we also live in a post fall world, a world that's been subjected to futility, and we struggle. We struggle, we question why things happen the way that they do. And therefore, the pretext that Jesus is working with is Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, the things revealed, namely the things revealed in Scripture, belong to us and to our children. We are to anchor the roots of our heart and our mind in the revealed will of God. Let's now see how Jesus applies this principle to these members of the crowd. As I mentioned, these members in the crowd were, again, questioning, why did this event happen? And we don't know much about this event that they're referring to. It's the only reference in scripture that speaks to it. And even in sources outside of the scripture, we, it's hard to find another source that speaks, to, that speaks directly to this event Uh, For instance, Josephus, the ancient historian, uh, speaks of a number of events that could fit the bill, but uh, there are discrepancies in chronology and geography. And so we don't know a lot about this slaughter of these Galileans, but they were questioning why. Why would God allow this to happen? Furthermore, some commentators think that another reason why these members of the crowd were bringing it up, uh, this issue up, is to try to solicit a political response out of Jesus. Now, Pilate wasn't very well liked by the Jews. He he did some bad things to the Jewish people. And they're trying to get Jesus to uh, speak out against him. But notice how Jesus completely sidesteps that temptation. Part of the reason I think he does is he really... We have to realize Jesus' mission to come to this earth was not merely to help the poor and the distressed of the first century. Jesus' mission to come to this earth was not to rescue the Jews from the grip of the Romans. He came to do something much, much greater, much more cosmic than affects mere change in the first century. He came to institute an everlasting kingdom. Therefore, we have to keep that in mind as we read the narrative of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus, uh, again, he sidesteps speaking out against, against Pilate, and he says this. He says, again, putting words likely to what members of this crowd would have been thinking. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? Members of the crowd were thinking, they must have merited this punishment. Think of Job and his friends. Very similar response. Jesus also refers to another tragic incident that we don't know much about, an incident where a tower on the southern wall of, of Jerusalem fell upon 18 people, killing them. Another one of those questions, why? Why would that happen? Why did it happen to those individuals and not 18 other people? Notice Jesus' answer to both of these Uh, tragic events. Were these individuals worse sinners? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. What Jesus is saying is you're asking the wrong question. Don't pry into the secret will of God. You will never know why those people perished instead of other people, but focus on what has been revealed. And what has been revealed is standing right in front of you. Repent and believe in me. Focus on the judgment that has been revealed, namely the judgment on the last day. And be prepared. Jesus is directing these members of the crowd to the revealed will of God, to what they know based on the revelation of Jesus himself and based on the the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus goes on to illustrate this the revealed will of God, this call to repent and implicitly believe in him using the imagery of a vineyard and a a fig tree. And In this this parable, a man plants a fig tree in his vineyard and this fig tree, after three years, still does not produce fruit. And so he tells his vine dresser, his, his gardener, he says, cut that tree down. It's 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 stealing all the nutrients of the soil. We don't need that taking up space and resources in our vineyard. But the vine dresser says, let's give it one more year. I'll fertilize it, I'll put manure around it, one more year. If it doesn't produce fruit after this year, then I'll cut it down. I might we'll be thinking, what is this parable all about? But when we press into this imagery of a vineyard, we see that it's a very symbolic, deeply symbolic image throughout scripture. For instance, uh, listen to Psalm 80. Uh, The psalmist is in some sense um, recounting the history of Israel, calling upon God to be gracious once again to his people. Psalm 80 verses 8-16 says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all those who pass along the way pluck its fruits? The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field feed upon it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the Son of Man the Son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. You can tell the story of Israel using this imagery of a vine in a vineyard. God transplanted the vine of Israel into the good soil of Palestine. But rather than bearing good fruit, it bore thorns and thistles. Israel disobeyed the law of their Lord. And therefore God plucked them out in exile to Babylon. We also see that God restored them back into the land. And Jesus' point is that if you do not repent and believe you'll be cut down. He's speaking here to ethnic Israel, those Jews who are on the brink of rejecting their Messiah. You don't have some exclusive right to the covenant promise of God just because you're an ethnic Jew. You need to repent. Now think of the words of John 15 when Jesus himself says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. But if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true vine of the Lord. And what he's saying is, if you don't want to get cut down, you need to repent and implant yourself into the true vine, which is Jesus Christ. Apart from that, it's impossible to bear the fruits. Of faith, apart from that, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. So again, Jesus is illustrating his point of repent and believe. Focus on what has been revealed. I am the true vine and plant yourself into me. Leave the secret things to the Lord. Focus on what's been revealed. Well, how does this principle apply apply to us? I began noting how we often, our minds oftentimes go to that why question. Why? Why did certain things happen? Why has our life turned out the way it is? The list can go on and on. Now, asking this question isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, in Scripture we see warrant for lament. We see in the Psalms, the psalmist crying out, why, God? But We have to be careful. If we go down that path too long, we can become disillusioned. In fact, when you, well, the pattern you see in the Psalms is then beginning with the lament, but always coming back to what has been revealed. God's past acts of deliverance. The promises of God that they know to be true. They never have an answer that secret will of God. But they know what's been revealed. And their heart always comes back to that. And so we too have to sink the roots, the roots of our our hearts and our minds into that revealed will of God. And God's revealed will is found climactically in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one in human history faced the why predicament more than Jesus as he walked on this earth. Many of you probably know the words that Jesus himself uttered when he was on the cross. He quoted Psalm 22. Psalm 22, you'll see, is a psalm all about Christ. See, in the first half is death, second half is resurrection. And Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you continue reading on in Psalm 22, it says, Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Psalm 22 shows us how much Jesus wrestled, struggled with the will of God, which ended in him being crushed. As one commentator in Psalm 22 says, and this is something that we don't always think about, but according to Jesus' human nature, Christ struggled. He struggled with being abandoned by God to death on the cross, even though he himself knew of the deliverance of his ancestors when they trusted in the Lord. Jesus struggled with being abandoned by God, even though he himself had a close relationship with his father from the day of his birth. According to his human nature, he struggled with what we read in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But yet we know that God's will, which resulted in the crushing of his son, also led to Easter Sunday. This greatest reversal of human history, God taking that greatest act of evil and turning it into the greatest gift for mankind in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, the God who can do that, if he can turn Good Friday into Easter, can he not take the the trials and tribulations that we face and bring good out of it? We know in Scripture that it will lead to our conformity to Christ, but we're not going to know the specific evidences of good beyond that. But we can trust in the God who's able to turn Good Friday into, into Easter and promises to do uh, the same. And furthermore, even though we have no promises in this life, that things will get better. We do know that the trials of this life are merely a mirage of the hellish torment, of the wrath of God, which will be uh, meted out on the last day. And we know, as as one author has said, because Jesus was abandoned in our place on the cross, no child of God, will ever be. We know that we have a hope beyond this creation which has been subjected to futility in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved in the Lord, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Whatever tribulation that you are currently walking through, guard, guard your heart from becoming disillusioned by the ever-present why that plagues your situation. And fix your heart, fix your mind upon the God of Good Friday and of Easter, the cross and the resurrection. Let us pray.